0: Thanks for tuning into the XL Legal Podcast, an interview-based podcast for lawyers devoted to practice excellence and wellness tips. I'm your host, Shelley Appleby Ostroff, Legal Talent Development Consultant, Writing Coach, and former practicing lawyer, and I'm so happy you're here. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Celeste Headley about the Do Nothing Revolution. Celeste is an award-winning journalist, longtime radio host, professional speaker, and author of the best-selling books. We need to talk how to have conversations that matter and do nothing, how to break away from overworking, overdoing and underliving. Welcome to the XL Legal Podcast Celeste.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
0: Well, thanks so much for being here. I thought a great place to start would be to talk about what inspired you to write Do Nothing.
1: I mean, I have to take it back before I was writing, because before I was writing a book, I was trying to solve a personal problem. I didn't actually plan to write a book about any of this, um, but I realized I hit a wall um, and my lifestyle was not sustainable. My my toxic productivity lifestyle was not sustainable. Um, I was quite successful. It had nothing to do with whether I succeeded in my career. It had some everything to do with whether emotionally and physically. I could continue to do what I was doing and and so um, I began to try to do research to figure out what was going wrong uh, because I felt like I was doing everything right. I was following all of these career books and Harvard Business Review articles and fortune articles that say these are the things that successful people do and hack your productivity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so it was a mystery to me why I was getting sick a lot, why I was irritable all the time, why, frankly, I wasn't happy. Um, Mm -hmm. and so that's where the book started was just in me trying to figure out what was going wrong. And then as I started talking to my friends and colleagues about what I, you know, my research project, they said, well, when you find out, uh, tell me because (laughs) that's my problem too. And that's when I realized, oh, I see, this is not about me. This is about us.
0: Oh my goodness, The just bang on all the things that you said. I've heard so many people say the same things over and over again. And I'm wondering for you, what are some of the lessons that you learned in in writing the book? Oh my gosh, so many.
1: I mean, the research for this book was long, but it was just epiphany after epiphany. You know, when I went into this, I, I thought the source of all my stress and anxiety, I, I wasn't thinking that it was my work habits or my productivity problem, obsession and and addiction. I thought maybe it was my tech. I thought maybe I needed to stay off social media more. That's what I thought I would discover. Um, But it wasn't. And that was a big revelation to me because if it's not the tech, (laughs) then (laughs) what could it be? Um, And so, when I began to dig through all of these dusty old tomes and sort of try to figure out Kind of the history of our work habits, that's when I just the neurons really started firing. When I realized that for most of the 300,000 years that we were on this planet, we worked less than half a year. <laughs> wow. Um, that was incredible to me. Um, and that led me to the Industrial Revolution when so many things changed. You know, you know, another big thing that was a major epiphany was realizing that this whole idea that time is money, that's invented and it's very recent. Like it's only within the last two or 300 years that we have thought that you should be paid hourly. (laughs) And I I realize this um, might take a little while for lawyers to get, but (laughs) being paid per hour is extremely recent. And frankly, very unsustainable and not helpful.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and
1: I say that because human beings essentially are task-based creatures. That's the way we lived our lives for most of our existence. It wasn't until the industrial revolution when factories came into play and it was less about how beautifully you made a banister, um, but how quickly you could make as many banisters as possible. That's when everything changed. That's when we started to, to make time, the hours that you spend, the measure for everything. And it makes no sense. And when I began to let that sink in, and I began to think to myself, what does it mean if it's not the the time spent that's of value, then what? (laughs) 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 Right? And that was another huge sort of eureka moment for me.
0: Yeah, yeah. Wow. And, you know, it's, it's so interesting how you trace the sort of this whole change back to the Industrial Revolution, how that's changed our conception and perception of work, and how that has stuck with us, um, and isn't necessarily progress. Uh, I think that it's so fascinating. And just all of the um, sort of the, the research you did, and the, the people that you spoke with, uh, in order to write the book, one of the things that um, jumped out at me, particularly thinking about the legal profession, is the what you call the busyness delusion. Just wondering if we can unpack that and talk about that a little bit.
1: You know, there's so many kind of levels to this, because if you ask people, and I don't know how common this is for you, I'm betting it's pretty common, when you ask people, how are you doing? And their answer is busy, <laughs> right? <laughs> so... And people truly believe this. If, you know, surveys that people have done, that researchers have done in recent years show that people, when it's self-reported, they are busier than ever. But when we actually track people's time, we find they have a lot more free time than they realize. And, and I want to be as detailed as possible here because A, very few people believe that when I say that to them. That's part yes. of the delusion. <laughs> um, <laughs> but also there's nuances to this. So for example, it is true that that work is creeping into our free time in a way that it never has before. This is something that some research institutions have called polluted time. That work mm-hmm. is polluting our weekends. It's polluting our evenings. That's true. On the other hand, um, we're doing a lot more not work while we're at work. So, we are shopping for clothing while we're at work. We are booking personal vacations when we're at work. <laughs> it's not equal. Work is absolutely winning in this particular race. We are we are allowing more work to creep in our personal lives than vice versa. But there is bleed. And so sometimes when we get home after a full day of work and we think I've just put in a 12 hour day, we didn't spend 12 hours working. Now, this is important because we can get our jobs done much more quickly than we're taking right now. We're spending more hours at work partly because our habits mean that it takes us eight hours to do what really should take us two and this is, this is not my gut feeling. This is backed up by literally decades and decades of research. You know, there's the, the old, um, axiom that, um, work will expand to <laughs> fill the time allotted in order to get it done, right? So if someone tells you to get a memo done by Friday, it'll take you till Friday. If they say, I need a memo in, you know, in an hour, it'll take you 60 minutes. Mm-hmm. So. This has happened with our work habits. Think of it this way. Imagine uh, an accountant in 1971, you know, handling 50 clients and getting all that work done in in 40 hours. Um, Now imagine that accountant today and all the tools that he or she has in order to get those same 50 clients, their work finished. It takes much less time So you get that accounting done today than it did in 1971. So why does today's accountant work a 60 hour week and 1971's accountant worked 40? So there's, I mean, there's a lot of nuances to this, but another part of the business, busyness delusion is that believing you don't have enough time, the feeling that people have of time scarcity vastly Increases your stress. It lowers your compassion. It lowers your empathy. It also makes the chances that you're going to make a mistake and therefore cause yourself more work. They go much higher. The chances that you are going to miscommunicate with somebody else, either through email or Slack or else, you know, another way go much higher. And so in so many ways, we are making ourselves busy. We are keeping ourselves busy with jobs that really should take us maybe two or three days
0: a week or maybe four hours a day. And you're saying that part of the busyness is the time spent Doing things on uh, using our technology to sort of scroll through vacation destinations and things to take us away from work is that what's, no, that's what's
1: happening just part of it? That's certainly not the biggest. That is not the biggest part of it because again, work wins that race. We do m- way more work than we do non work. <laughs> but it, that's one of the wrinkles. One of the things that it's taking us longer is we just keep adding tasks. Hmm. Number one, we're adding really unnecessary meetings. Like meetings are my, I am on a, on a crusade to end the meeting madness. Our meetings have, if you compare the number of meetings that that accountant took in 1971 to the number that we have today, it's, ridiculous. And and not only that but let me just pull up I'm just going to pull up some data for you when it comes to uh the problem with meetings cuz this is a huge time suck. 37% of meetings people say uh, when we do surveys of of workers and leadership 37% of meetings add no value. The average Salary cost of a meeting is $338 per person that's there, which means unnecessary meetings waste $25 million a day or $37 billion a year. Um, While they're in a meeting, almost 40% of people admit that they have napped. Um, Three out of four people say they have done other work while a meeting was going on. Almost half of workers have felt overwhelmed by the number of meetings they have to attend. And almost half say meetings waste more time than anything else they do on a job. So wow. if we want to like save ourselves time and end this whole busyness delusion, the first thing we need to do is slash and burn those meetings. <laughs> they have they have got to stop. It is <laughs> insane. Um, so that's number one. Uh, the I think honestly that's one of the biggest time sucks. The other biggest time suck is email. Mm-hmm. We we send too many emails. We include too many people CCing on emails, and we have another delusion that an email that uh, emails are there's an expectation that emails are going to be answered really really quickly. That is unnecessary emails we often open emails almost immediately. And that interruption of our focused thought, which is incredibly important for anybody who is doing intellectual work, like a lawyer, (laughs) you are losing up to 40% of your productive time to interruptions. And most of those interruptions are checking your
0: inbox. Wow. That is absolutely astounding. And hearing the statistics really brings it home. And I imagine that things are a lot worse, and I don't know when those studies were done, but I imagine things are a lot worse now that we're all working from home.
1: Yes, absolutely. It is much, much worse. And there's a few reasons for that. Number one, people have added meetings. Um, There are more meetings now, significantly more than before the pandemic. Another one is that Zoom fatigue is real. That is a real trackable and measurable neurological condition. And so the fact that people keep defaulting to video conferencing is a huge problem because you're exhausting people. You know, even before the pandemic, over 90% of workers said that over the course of the day, they never engage in deep work. Wow.
0: Think about that for a moment. <laughs> when do they do the deep work, if ever?
1: Do they? <sighs> yeah. <laughs> a million dollar question. Yeah. Wait, wow. Wait. Most, a lot of people cannot get that deep work done at home either because they have family distractions. They have a FedEx person coming to the door. They have their dogs barking, right? Like, so what yeah. this means is that in a, in a nation and a, and a global environment in which a massive number of people um, are doing intellectual work, knowledge workers, they're never engaging in deep thought or deep focus. And that's where a lot of our time ends up going. Because when you are not in deep focus, your work is less accurate. You miss stuff. You're not an innovative thinker. You're not a creative thinker. And of course, if you are making mistakes and you're missing stuff and you don't realize it, that's going to end up taking that same brief that
0: should take you two hours to write will end up taking you two days. Yeah. And also, I'm thinking about somebody maybe who's reviewing your work, right? There's, a, there's that sort of extra element to it as well, because, I mean, it's a profession where errors are pretty costly. So, how can we, I don't know, is there anything we can do in order to have the environment to do focused, deep work?
1: I mean, the first thing is, if you are a, a leader in, in any way, if you have people working for you so Stop using time at work as a measure of good work. You need to focus on um, whether they get their assignments done on time and how high is the quality of that work. That's it. How long they spend with their butt in the seat, whether they answer an email at 9 p.m., they should not be answering email at 9 p.m., but whether they do that or not should not be a measure at all of how good a work they are. And then you need to say the same thing to yourself. Um, I mean, keep in mind that some of the greatest thinkers and most accomplished people in history, Charles Dickens, Charles Darwin, Henri Poincaré, I mean, I the list could go on and on and on, who worked maybe three or four hours a day. So this idea that the longer we work, the better work we're doing, that's completely and totally untrue. That's, again, not my feeling. That is backed up by at least 250 years of research. But the other thing is, is that we have to stop demanding of ourselves urgent and immediate responses. You know, they, we have had an email around for a very long time. And so there's literally decades of research on this. We have a sense that we have to respond to emails immediately. But in fact, I think it's like something like perhaps one to 2% of all of our emails as knowledge workers are actually urgent. So, You can, you should not ever be responding to emails after work hours. You have to set an opening and a closing time. Now, look, I'm a journalist. I get breaking news situations. You know, I get situations in which you have to uh, be on the clock all the time, but they're rare. It's not every day. Mm -hmm. It's not even most days. And in that particular case, my opening the time when the celeste Headley office opens is like ten in the morning, and I close at four thirty <laughs> that 's when the, the sign flips over
0: to closed, and that 's it yeah. <laughs> the shop's yeah. closed fantastic i mean i'm just i'm just sort of thinking i 'm listening to you i 'm nodding yes, 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 like all of it makes such good sense, but i 'm thinking about the environment like the legal profession that is all you know time based billing. And yeah, it's, you know, hours with, uh, you know, the FaceTime is important, but it's also the time that you are able to allocate to a particular client file and then, you know, how much can be built out. How do you see some of these things playing out in that environment? Is there anything we can do?
1: I mean, it's a great question. You know, we're in the midst of a burnout epidemic, not just in the legal profession, but everywhere. Legal profession, the medical profession, the journalism profession, lots and lots of different professions are, are dealing with burnout right now, so much so that the WHO has sent out warnings about a burnout epidemic. Um I should also say that the newest research we got from the World Health Organization draws a direct line of causation, not correlation, but causation between w- working more than 50 hours a week and having a shortened lifespan. More so, than 50? Yes. Wow. So if you <laughs> are constantly or regularly working more than 50 hours a week, it will shorten your life. That's number one. But there are things that you can do as an individual, and there are things that are systemic, that have to be changed, uh, you know, on on a broader level. For the legal profession, it's much like the medical profession, that true change needs to happen, not With because some individual decides they're gonna you know bill by the case instead of the hour, but because the legal profession decides we cannot, in good conscience, kill lawyers (laughs) by forcing them to work like this. But also, this is not the best way to live. However, on in the individual space, there are there's plenty of things that you can do to make these individual small tweaks. Number one is. Do not work for more than, a, like, say 50 minutes at a time without taking a break. Hmm. Even if it's just five minutes, everybody has five minutes. Unless you're in a, a long deposition or something, or you're in a, you're in a courtroom, get up and take a break for five minutes. Um, and that break needs to be away from your screens. So a big problem that a lot of people are encountering right now is that when they take a break, they'll close out that Zoom screen or whatever. They immediately pick up their phone and check their social media, check their inbox. That's not a break. Your brain actually doesn't distinguish between um, looking at your Facebook feed or looking at Twitter and work. So as far as your brain is concerned, if you have spent the entire day either working or looking at your cell phone or your screen, you've worked without a break all day long and you you can't sustain, you literally physiologically and neurologically can't sustain that. So take your five minutes, get up and walk away. There's great research that's occurred over the course of the pandemic from Microsoft in which they actually did, they tracked um people who were A, keep doing their jobs the way they'd always done, which is means going from one conference call to another to another, which were almost all Zoom calls. And the other one, they forced that group to take 10 minutes out of between every meeting and get up and walk away, take a break for 10 minutes. And you can see on these brain scans that the first group, their brain very, very quickly gets flooded with all the reds and yellows and oranges which indicate high stress, high fatigue. And the other group that just took that 10-minute break, blues and greens, that's a brain that's relaxed, that's a brain that's healthier and is probably doing more accurate and more creative work. So that's number 1 is take your break. The other one is again, you have to establish times when you are not on the clock. And by not on the clock, I mean not checking your inbox not checking slack, because we we know what happens to a human body and brain when it's on call all the time. And that's what that means. As far as your brain is concerned, it doesn't understand <laughs> that you're out with your kids playing with them in the park, and the work time is only the time when you're checking your inbox, right? It doesn't Switch back and forth right like that. As far as your your brain is concerned, because you are checking, checking, checking regularly, your brain will remain on alert, like a runner at the beginning, you know, at the starting blocks. Hmm. So, you again, you're out there watching your kids at the beach or wherever you are, gardening, and mm-hmm. you're not relaxing. You are essentially on call that entire time. And that is un
0: sustainable. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you got to stop. Stop. That's all right. Let's talk. You're, you're saying so optimal work for 50 minutes, take a five, 10 minute break uh, exactly. and just keep walk away. walk away, get away from the screen. Um, like take a just even walk. I notice even for myself when I'm, I have a day of many zoom calls. If I just open the door and stand outside and just sort of focus my eyes across the street as opposed to on the screen that, that really just whew, I feel that sense of just decompression.
1: Oh, it's um, so true. And that's sometimes all that you need. In fact, looking at a tree helps to relax your body like within seconds. Um so it, you really you don't need to, you know, have some elaborate plan in place. It really can be that simple.
0: And I imagine it's difficult to, um, you know, to time yourself and say, okay, 50 minutes, how, like any sort of suggestions on how you might start implementing that? Because if you're left to your own devices, you know, you're looking at your watch or whatever, it's like, okay, well, I'm just in the middle of something and I'm just got to get to this point. And then, then, I'll, then I'll take a break. One of the things
1: I think that maybe reading my book might help is because I tried to fill it full of the research, because the fact of the matter is that people are not, they struggle to believe what I'm telling them. <laughs> um, because it, it feels like the more you work, the more work you'll get done. That's not true. Uh, but that's what it feels like should be true. And also when we are trying to multitask, that's another thing, stop multitasking. Um, but when when we're doing these things, uh it it fills us full of dopamine which is a a pleasure hormone, right? It's the same hormone that's stimulated when you have sex or take a shot of heroin. Um, and it fills us with this, this delusional feeling that we're super hyper productive. We feel like superheroes for a short period of time. Now, unfortunately, there's a major dopamine crash that you're going to feel much more tired at the end of the day. Um, if you've been t- taking shots of dopamine all day then otherwise. By the way, you get a shot of dopamine every time you refresh your Facebook feed, every time you refresh your inbox. So you are probably hooked on dopamine all day long and will crash at the end of the day. But it people struggle to believe that humans do their best work when they are rested. And that's partly because this, the shame of not working and the virtue of working all the time is built into our culture. And, and it wasn't by chance. It was intentionally built into our culture through a combination of religious, religion telling us that idle hands are the devil's playground to, um, our nation telling us it's patriotic to continue to work to our very society and culture. The people that we look up to that we mistakenly believe were people who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, right? We believe in the rags to riches story. We believe in the Benjamin Franklin um, great man myth. And so we have just this incredible pressures working on our subconscious, making us feel guilty if we take a break. So when you say, how do we do this? How do we get up? You just have to force yourself. Like literally, I would even, um, not make it a, a digital thing. I, I went out and I bought one of those kitchen timers that looks like a tomato. <laughs> oh, the pom- Pompadoro one? Yeah, a Pomodoro. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Pomodoro. That you just, <laughs> I just set it for 50 minutes. And when it rings, I get up. It's not negotiable. You walk away. Eventually it will be self rewarding. Like eventually for me, I I began to realize that I felt better and I was getting more done when I took a break, and that's when I started to expand it. When I realized that I was more productive when I was rested, then I start was like, "Well, heck, screw the ten minute break. I'm going to take a fifteen minute break. (laughs) You know, (laughs) screw the screw the fifteen minutes. I'm I'm going to take a half hour here. And and the truth of it is, is that I have gotten more done." Since I started working half days. Now, I don't um, always get half days. I don't always. Sometimes I have really, really long days. But on the, on the whole, I, I work maybe a 30-hour week. Versus what were you working before? Oh, God, 60, maybe more.
0: Incredible, incredible. And has that made a difference in, I mean, it certainly made a difference in how, how you've been feeling, but has that made a difference in, you know, other aspects of the sort of the work life, how people perceive you, your productivity level, um, you know, all the things that we worry about when we think about working less.
1: I'm higher paid, and I'm way more productive than I was before. So let me see, since 2017, I have published four books, including one short ebook, I have hosted three podcasts, um, I have been a backup host for NPR. I've given speeches to probably, I mean, I think I've ended up giving like maybe 300 different paid speeches um, over the course of, you know, two, I guess, since 2017, 2018. And the thing of it is, is that I haven't lost any money. The reason why is because someone will come to me and say, hey, you know, can you do this particular speech or can you do this workshop? And I say, nope. <laughs> i full up for that month. And so they'll say, okay, what if we offered you, you know, my general rate for like a keynote speech is 37.5. They'll say, well, what if we offered you 45? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so as I have become, as I have turned down more jobs, the price has gone higher. I'm not <laughs> offering people, you I know, mean, I'm not charging them more. They're just offering me more. Right. Um, so yeah, I, it, it, I, by whatever measure you want to use, how much I've gotten finished, how good that work is and how much I'm being paid. I haven't lost a thing. The only thing is that now I have time to walk my dog and see my kid and go to movies <laughs> and, you know, bake sourdough bread. And, <laughs> you know, I have time to live my life. That's the purpose of the work, right? Yeah. I mean, the reason you work hard. The reason why you want to make more money is so you can have a happier life.
0: Yeah. And spend time doing the things that you enjoy doing. Right. And you know, that's something too that I find um, with lawyers is that we sort of forget what we enjoy doing. I don't know how many people I've talked to who've said, when I ask the question, so you know, what do you do when you're not at work? And then there's this silence. It's like, well, first of all, it's very rare that I'm not at work. And second of all, I don't really have any hobbies, yeah, I used to have hobbies, and yeah, and like what can we do to help sort of bring that back to the forefront and um, to sort of emphasize the importance of that because I mean you, I know you spent a lot of time talking about that in the book and and the importance of idleness versus being lazy and but also the importance of having hobbies.
1: Yeah. I feel like a lot of people may be ready to accept this part since the pandemic. And I say that because I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, um, how high people's anxiety was. And that was partly because everyone sort of removed everything in their house that wasn't connected to work. Everything in their house was either meant for their actual work or it was meant to build their brand. So that's all their houses were full of. People didn't have closets full of board games anymore or stamp collections or rock polishing or macrame or all those things that we sort of snidely laugh about because earlier generations did that. But think about this for a moment. You know, this was another, you know, you talked about epiphany moments earlier. And one of the biggest epiphanies for me was sitting down on my couch one day when I was just exhausted. And even though I love to cook, I was like, I'm too tired to cook. I'm going to have to order in. And by chance, I happened to look into my kitchen and I started noticing all the things I have in my kitchen that saved me time over what my grandmother had. It just kind of struck me that I have all of these time savers in my house. So I grabbed a notebook and I started going around my house and adding up all the time I save every week that my grandmother did not save right? That she had to actually wash dishes by hand and she didn't have a robot vacuum and -hmm. she didn't have a microwave, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I have an, I should have at least an extra, like, I can't remember the exact amount. It was over 20 hours a week that my grandmother didn't have. And yet She did the women's club and they went bowling. And when they went on vacations, they had neighbors over to look at their slides and they had neighborhood barbecues and they did all these other things. And she had more hours to work. So where was my time going? You know, we, we have all these things that save us time and yet we, we have less time. How does that math work? And so when it comes to hobbies, I thought, you know what? Our grandparents they weren't naive in having playing bocce and badminton. They had it right. They had a better balance than we do, and therefore they were healthier and happier.
0: Oh, so true. And I'm just sort of thinking about, you know, I guess with. You know, misty eyes. The the thought of sitting on a porch and sort of yeah. in the summer, in the early evening as the sun's going down. <laughs> Wouldn't
1: that be nice?
0: Wouldn't that be nice? But yeah, so why aren't we doing that? Oh my goodness.
1: There's so many reasons. And this is one of the things that it took me quite a while to sort of track in my book. I was really amused to read one particular review from a reader that said, why is there so much history in here? Well, because (laughs) otherwise I can't explain how 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 we got here because it really is a a thing in which people made bad decisions and every generation leaned into them further. That's really Mm -hmm. how we got here. Um, And I don't think we can fix it without understanding how we got here.
0: Absolutely. And I I think that was one of the things for me that I thought was so powerful about the book is that there was so much research and it made it very difficult not to accept what you ultimately came up with in terms of strategies and ways to help us um, to become less focused on this idea of what you call, I think, false efficiency. Yeah. so one of the things that I was thinking as uh, as you were talking was the the idea of sort of leisure time and what that means for our generation, our the, I don't know if it's my generation, but the newer the, <laughs> the new generation. My sense is that they're sort of embracing that a little bit more. That I'm seeing some of the you know younger lawyers in particular being a lot more demanding about ways to find that elusive balance between their work lives and their personal lives.
1: 100% agree with you on that. The biggest demographic for this book is um millennials and Gen Z. And <laughs> lots of I'm Gen X um but uh, there are so many millennials and uh, members of Gen Z who are making TikToks about the book and like doing complete Twitter threads. One um young woman uh did a whole Instagram every day on Instagram. She'd read another chapter and like (laughs) analyze it with responses. Yeah. I do think they are embracing this more. And it's partly, as I said, every generation has leaned into it. So I think that while our, my generation, Gen X is like, this is awful. And, and we want our lives back. It's gotten even worse for Gen Z and millennials. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they're even more focused on making this better is because it, It's truly unsustainable for their generation. And yeah, and uh, this is a really important point because the most common people who push back on these ideas and are are a little combative about it are generally baby boomers. That would be me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I had an interview with a guy who's a baby boomer and he could not get over the title. He was like, "You don't mean do nothing." So if we do, you want us to sit around and do nothing, and then the whole human race—we don't even eat. We don't—we do nothing at all, and then we all just die out. I was like, <laughs> "No." So yeah, there's this big resistance um, to this idea of idleness, and I think it's just so ingrained that that is what is virtuous. That that hard work is what makes you deserving of everything, of, of the government safety net in, in terms of your social security. Everything hinges on how hard you've worked for the baby boomer generation. And I think it's that much harder. So when you talk about the research really convincing you, that's why that's all there is because mm-hmm. otherwise, I think for some people, it is very hard to swallow.
0: Yeah. And that's the other thing going back to we um, were talking about at the beginning and in sort of... Uh, how how can we implement change at the systemic level? So yeah. those in the legal profession who are making those decisions, they're of the same generation as me, unfortunately, yeah. uh, in that they are going to need a lot of a uh, lot of convincing. But as I said, for me, that was I, I loved all of that at the beginning. And uh, that really was a, a, a buy in. It was very persuasive. So good. Uh, yeah, yeah, very much so. A couple of things I just wanted to build on that you mentioned again, sort of the idea of how, what we can we do in the workplace to bring about sort of a change in our uh, mindset or perception. One of the things that you mentioned in the book is to try to to focus more on working in teams, but in a mm-hmm. different way than we are used to working in teams. Yeah, yeah. I just wonder if we can talk about that a little bit. Sure.
1: Number one, most people dread working in teams. And when we think about working in teams, we think about meetings. And that is not what I mean at all. (laughs) Stop the meetings. (laughs) Um, But when, you know, the human being is better in a group. That's just true. You know, there's a lot of research. There's a great book called The Wisdom of Crowds. um, And that tracks hundreds of years of research into just how much better we are. Let me give you just one example um, that will elucidate this. The U.S. Navy lost a submarine in the Atlantic Ocean and they brought in, of course, the best experts they could get, people who understood geography of oceans, tides, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, They could not find it. So at one point, someone on the team said, you know what? I'm just going to poll people. I mean, literally everyone, people he met, his neighbors. He just started showing them a map, saying, hey, this is the last place that we found that you know we knew where the submarine was where's your guess and they took the average of their guesses and they found the submarine no yeah this is true (laughs) so you know again and again we find that a, a diverse group of people regardless of their experience and intellect is more accurate in their answers than even the most experienced expert. This is true um, in companies. You know, if you take a poll of all of your workers, including the janitorial staff, literally everybody, you are more likely to get an accurate answer on choosing whether to do a merger or acquisition. This is, I mean, how powerful it is, the human intelligence in a group. That's different than meetings. We don't use meetings to work together as a team. In other words, if we were using meetings to be like, okay, here's the task that we have. Who does these best? We know each other so well <laughs> that we know what everybody's strengths and weaknesses are. We're not going to let politics or unconscious bias influence who gets what assignments and what, who doesn't. We're just going to work as a team, knowing that our, our goal is to be as successful as possible, not to, you know, beat out the other person that's the point at which we do our best work. And by the way, we don't see any connection between whether you like people and how good your work is. You don't have to like the people who are on your team in order for you to do really, really good work together. You just have to respect that everybody has something to contribute and and listen to one another. So, like if that. we did our work that way, we would get a lot more done. It would be better work and and we'd probably have a lot more time to go home and
0: Do whatever it is that you you know want to do. Binge Netflix. (laughs) Yeah, I think we're getting tired of Netflix. Um, (laughs) But that sort of brings up uh, another point that you mentioned in the book that uh, I thought was super interesting. But the idea of meetings, or when we sort of get together as a group, we often use that opportunity to brainstorm. And your suggestion is that that might not be the best way to brainstorm.
1: I'm so glad that you brought up this specifically because it, for a lot of people it's extremely counterintuitive. But the best science, the best research, organizational psychologists, neurologists will tell you that we don't people don't brainstorm very well in groups. Instead, what we tend to do if we're brainstorming at, in in a group, we tend to come up with really similar ideas to what we've just heard. We tend to sort of align ourselves with other people right? Someone will bring up one idea, someone else will bring up something that's relatively similar. And we all have a tendency to go with the first good idea that we hear rather than waiting until we hear the best idea. So what? there's a system of brainstorming that works so much better, which is you tell everybody what you need ideas on. They go out as individuals and think about this alone, individually, and they come up with a list of ideas. You send it to the person who's leading the, the meeting, and then you all gather. You have the list of ideas there from everybody. You don't know who proposed them, which is important for diversity and inclusion, um, and then you all discuss them, not to critique. You're not critiquing. You're not putting one down. You're not trying to be competitive so that you can like say how great your idea is. And so this one's terrible. You're just analyzing them individually to say, okay, if we did that, then what? Then you break apart again and you have people come up with maybe some new ideas maybe some uh tweaks to the one that they that they already like they do that individually because again coming up with ideas and getting inspiration is mostly a solitary activity for a human being then you come together and decide as a group which one is
0: is best and you can do that with a vote i love that particularly in a profession that um surprise surprise is comprised of a lot of introverts and it becomes very stressful when you're in a meeting with a large group and there's all the dynamics that, um, you know, in the politics that are involved there. And like you say, you know, someone mentioned someone comes up with an idea and you feel you should align yourself with that person. So you kind of accept their idea. But if you were on your own in an environment that was comfortable for you to generate your own thoughts, chances are you would come up with something completely different and probably better So, I just, I love that idea and I I really hope that, um, you know, that catches on because I see that there's so much to it.
1: You know, and one thing I would say about um, introverts, it is, is, there are a lot of people thinking that they're introverts who are not. Hmm. A a real introvert is a rare thing. Um, Adam Grant has done some, with some other colleagues, has done a lot of research into this. But it, the reason I bring it up is that if you believe you are an introvert, and again, statistically speaking, you're probably not, you're more likely to avoid social situations because you're avoiding social situations. Um, you, the next time you have a social interaction, it might be more awkward because your social skills have degraded, which means you're more likely to believe that you're an introvert, which begins the cycle all over. Now, introverts tend to have shorter lives.
0: Shorter lives?
1: Yeah. Because social interaction is healthy for human beings. Social, you know, you, would, you we know what happens to a human being in solitary confinement. Their brain shrinks. Loneliness and social isolation is as bad for you as smoking 12 cigarettes a day. So you never want to do anything that for whatever reason leads you to avoid social interaction. Most people in the world are ambiverts. They are people who sometimes need time alone and sometimes they need to, you know, to see friends and hang out or be in a group. They are adaptable. If your boss requires you to be at a cocktail mixer, you can do it. Um, that's what an ambivert is. That's a much healthier... Um, state of mind. So they have a little bit of, of the odds on their side in terms of health. It's harder for introverts, for a true introvert. So I really want people to be careful about identifying as introverts because A, you're probably not, and B, it's a self-perpetuating, very destructive cycle.
0: Right, right. Yeah. So fascinating because so much has been written, like you're saying, to convince us that, yeah, we're introverts and these are some of the things, some of the strategies that we can use um, to adapt to a world full of extroverts. Uh, Yeah, so fascinating. Another um, interesting um, idea that uh, stuck with me from the book, and particularly in the context of the legal profession and where we're trying to convince um, people – of my generation, that you know, idleness is important um, in order to stimulate uh, your brain and to create um, better ideas and all of that. But something really struck me was that the brain is actually active during periods of rest. It's yeah. not that the brain the brain is idle.
1: Yeah, it's totally true. Uh, you know, and and the other thing I would say is that. We should not connect idleness with inactivity, right? Because you can be working while you're physically idle. You can be a, a security guard and be, or a toll booth operator or a fisherman and be working while you're physically idle. So inactivity and idleness are not the same, Um, so that's number one to be, cause I want everyone to be thinking these through, to be interrogating these concepts, but yeah, when you are inactive, your brain, I mean, I think it's only like maybe 5% (laughs) less energetic than it is when you're working on focused work. Like it's, it's difficult to get your brain to stop working. And in fact, we think of boredom as this horrible thing. But in fact, boredom is super productive and valuable. And the reason for this is exactly what you've just alluded to. Our brains hate to be bored. And so, therefore, when we experience boredom, when we allow ourselves to sit long enough that um, we begin to, to experience boredom, our brains will start like searching around for something to occupy themselves. (laughs) They'll send the, the librarians back into the stacks and they'll be sifting through the archives to try and find something that'll interest us. That'll that'll get the brain juices flowing. And so they'll be like, oh, yeah, you were supposed to send a postcard to your Aunt Mary. Oh, my God, I was going to fix that one screen door. Oh, I was going to do this. I remember that. I remember that. And so you'll, all of these things will begin to bubble up. Things that before, because you were focused on something, it, your brain didn't have a chance to think of those things. And you might switch into what's known as the default mode network. And this is a slightly controversial subject among neuroscientists. But essentially, your default mode network is kind of a a system um, of parts of your brain that get active when you stop being on a focused task. When you're not focused on being productive at something, you can switch into this very um, fertile ground of of activity for your brain, which when it's which it's very very active, but it's probably much more creative and frankly more relaxed than it is when you're focused on getting something done.
0: If well, I, I mean we don't we don't have time to talk about why it's a controversial uh, yeah. subject, uh, but to me it just makes such good sense because I've experienced it and, and I know so many people talk about experiencing that. So yeah, well, in the interest of time, Celeste, I mean we could talk. Well, I could talk. to you about this for such a long time, but uh, I recognize we're almost at the hour and I just wanted to check in with you and see if there's anything that we didn't touch on that you think would be useful to pass on to listeners.
1: The very last thing I would say, and this is mainly because we're talking to mostly lawyers, is that a lot of research shows us that the smarter you, there's a couple things. Number one, the smarter you are, the worse your conversational skills are, statistically speaking, um, and that's partly because the smarter you are, the, the worse of a listener you are. You're mm-hmm. more likely to assume you know what somebody's saying. Um, and so you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so here's the answer. You also know a lot. So you tend to go enter into conversations ready to educate people rather than be educated. So you're missing your learning curve goes straight into the toilet. Um, but also, the smarter you are, the more prone you are to discriminate based on unconscious bias. And I'm going to say that again, the smarter mm. you are, the more biased you are. You are more susceptible to implicit bias than others, not less. And and again, this is partly because this, when you are very highly educated, when you are very intelligent, your learning curve plateaus or, or goes down. You're not learning from other people anymore. So especially for people in the, the legal profession, It's really, really important that you stop assuming you're the smartest person in the room or that other people don't have something to teach you because you're missing out on a lot of really important information and you're not doing your job as well. Because you're not hearing what people are really telling you. Everybody is not efficient and not everybody's a lawyer in, in how they deliver their message. Sometimes it takes them a while to, to wind up to it. And when you stop listening to them, cause you're, all you're thinking about is what you're going to say in response. When you cut them off, cause you say, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So here's what the answer is. They may have not have gotten to their essential point yet. You know, this is the same kind of issue that's a problem for doctors and it it causes issues as you can probably understand in the medical field, well, it also causes problems in the legal field
0: yeah. wow, so well said, and such an important message wow, uh, and thank you so much for that as um yeah, spoken from a true expert and I have the <laughs> utmost respect for um, for you, your views on this, particularly going back to your wonderful TED talk on how to have conversations because I think that was a game changer for a lot of people and and I know I've spoken to a lot of lawyers who have seen that, and it really gave them a, you know a lot of things to think about uh, in terms of the way they communicate. and communication is the key to our profession yeah so um yeah so celeste i can 't thank you enough for taking so much time to speak with me and just sharing all of your research and your wonderful ideas and I guess my last question is what 's next for you? You just seem like there 's always so much going on in your life
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i um well i I wrote it, uh, my most recent book is called Speaking of Race, which is about how to talk about difficult issues of diversity inclusion how to have these conversations in a productive way and i, I the ebook that i wrote is called uh you're cute and you're mad uh yeah. <laughs> simple solutions to talk combating sexism so that's what's next for me right now is i'm really focused on helping people to stop avoiding these conversations and how to get through them in a way that's actually going to move the needle um so yeah that's my current
0: work Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I encourage everybody to follow you and um, to read all of the books that are available and check out your website, certainly uh, the Do Nothing Revolution. Um, (laughs) Is there a particular place that you would uh, like me to direct listeners to to learn more about you and, and your work?
1: Yeah, the website is totally fine. Um, the DEI work, I have a nonprofit that does the, the DEIB work that's diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging, and that's headwaytraining.org. Uh, um, and then my website is just com.
0: Perfect. Okay, yeah. excellent. Well, thank you again, Celeste. Just such a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining me today on the XL Legal Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'm always looking for topic and guest ideas. So if you have any suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you at xllegal.com. That's E-X-E-L-L-E-G-A-L.com.